0: outline for the sermon is found at the beginning of your Life of Christ 2 book that you all probably should have now with you in your person since everybody said they got one. Right at the beginning of the book, you will find our outline. We spent a number of weeks last year discussing part one, the road to happiness, better known as what? The Beatitudes. We spent, I think, eight or nine, maybe more, of our lessons discussing the road to happiness or the highway to happiness. And by the way, if you don't like to read and you're more of a tapeworm than you are a bookworm, all of these lessons are on cassette tapes. And we actually have a little mini tape album back there called Highway to Happiness, which is a study that we did last year on the, on the Beatitudes. A very, very beneficial study for all of us. All of us to study the Beatitudes. We t- they're also called the divine paradoxes of scripture which means they're kind of like truth standing on its head. Truth standing on their head. We talked about how the poor are rich. That's sort of like truth standing on its head. The poor are rich. We talked about how the sad are happy. These are the blessed ours. These are the, you know, happy are. Happy or the, 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 those who are um, approved of God is what blessed means. They have, they have got God's smile on their lives. The blessed are. the sad are happy, the meek are winners, the uh, hungry are filled, the persecuted are joyful. Now, none of the things um, that the world considers vital for happiness appear in the Beatitudes, do they? Would the world agree with the, these things? That the poor are rich, that the sad are happy? that the persecuted should be joyful, that the hungry, no, they would never, ever agree with those. Jesus was telling his disciples and the other listeners of his Sermon on the Mount how vastly different are the characteristics of God's kingdom and God's citizens from those of the world. He was telling them about the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, the righteousness of God that can only be had by those who belong to him can only be had by those who are born again. He was describing for his listeners the true righteousness of God and how it alone produces joy deep within a person's soul and hope and and blessedness in our lives. A true kingdom citizen will be righteous where? In the heart. A A true kingdom citizen. And when I say kingdom citizen, I'm talking about you know a a saved person a true christian one who has been born again Um, a true citizen of heaven will be righteous in his heart or her heart inwardly he will have a heart that is poor in spirit understanding you know that apart from god apart from christ he is absolutely a beggar he has nothing to commend himself to god He's poor in spirit. He will have a heart that mourns over its natural sinful condition. He will have a heart that is meek and merciful to others. He will be pure in heart, and he will uh, hunger and thirst after godly righteousness. He will strive to be at peace with all men as much as lies in him, and he will be able to rejoice even when he is persecuted for the sake of his Savior, the Lord Jesus. Well, after looking at the characteristics in the Beatitudes of kingdom citizens, the Lord then took us to a consideration of the function of kingdom citizens in what is known as the similitudes. We looked at the Beatitudes, and this, by the way, did I tell you, was in Matthew 5, verses uh 3 to 12, those are the Beatitudes. And then in verses 13 to 16, we looked at the similitudes. That was uh, in part two of your outline called the responsibility to the world. He told, his, he told believers how they are to functionally apply what they are to, to the world in which they live. And to illustrate this teaching, he used two metaphors, things that were very common and all, that all people would understand when he used these metaphors. He said that we are to be as salt and we are to be as light. As salt, the believer is to influence this decaying, corrupt world that he or she lives in. We're to provide savor to this world. We're to promote purity. We're it's uh, preservative. We are to provoke thirst in people. We're... um, we are to uh, prevent putrefaction, and, uh, et cetera. We talked about all the different characteristics of salt and how that is how we as Christians are to be to this world. And then as light, we are to illuminate this dark, sin-blinded world. We expose the darkness with our light, and that's why nonbelievers sometimes don't like to be around us <laughs> because the light exposes the evil of darkness. Uh, we also um, enlighten from the darkness. All right, so we talked about the similitudes. And then the next section of our sermon outline, which uh, took us from verse 21 to 48. We're going to finish up this next section. We didn't get to finish it quite last year. But this third section was entitled Reinterpretations of the Law. That's where we left off. And it is really this whole section. I don't know if you can even see that is really an extended commentary on the Lord's statement in Matthew 5.20 when he said to his listeners, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So this whole next section is a commentary on that statement. He presented a strong contrast between his own teaching... And the teaching that had been passed down to the Jew- Jewish people and expanded upon over the many centuries, um, through uh, of their of um, their rabbis, the rabbinical accumulated teaching over the centuries, what they had to say about the law of God, the Mosaic law. Of course, they took His law, they expanded upon it, they added added a lot to it, they subtracted a lot to it, and by the time it got down to the time of Christ, it had. It was hardly even recognizable, and they are referred to in this section of the sermon as them of old time, when he says, you know, you have heard that it was said by them of old time, meaning the rabbinic, the rabbis and rabbinical, pharisaical tradition, but then he would go on and say, but I say unto you, and then what he would do is give them the correct interpretation of the Mosaic law. And that's what we looked at in this next section that we're going to finish up today as he gave six contrasting examples of this, uh, you know, the difference between what they taught and what he taught. And um, in each of those six subjects, which were, this was really convicting, wasn't it? Did any of us leave this study not convicted? Every single lesson we were convicted you know, you'd come and you'd think, oh, we're going to discuss murder. I'm certainly safe on this one. But by the time we left, we thought, oh, man, if I even got angry at somebody, I'm a murderer in my heart. We, took, we looked at murder. We were all murderers. That was fun. We were all adulterers. <laughs> Maybe not the divorce, but we all were pretty guilty in, in every other area. Um, Oath making. and we, You know, you think, oh, well, that, I could get by that one. no. We couldn't because that even if you made a promise or and you broke it, you were, or if you um, took a vow and didn't keep it, we were well. We were all guilty anyway. Just to make it short, and retaliation meaning non-vengeful, you know, turning the other cheek and all that. So we talk about murder, adultery, divorce, oath making, and retaliation. And the one we're going to look at today. This is a great way to start the year. We're going to talk about love, finally. (laughs) Get through all those bad subjects and we get to look at love. But we're going to be convicted again. Because who in the world has ever loved their neighbor as (laughs) themselves? Already we're guilty, aren't we? (laughs) Anyway, throughout all of these, he taught the same basic principle. And that is that true and godly righteousness is a matter of the heart. The heart, the inner man. Throughout the Old Testament, God's revealed will has always been that he requires a sincere internal heart righteousness. If godliness does not begin and end in the heart, it it really doesn't exist at all. God is first and foremost interested in what a man or what a woman or what a boy or girl is like on the inside. And that was really the message of the Beatitudes, which we kept kept coming back to a true kingdom citizen will be or will strive to be righteous inwardly he will have a heart for example that is poor in spirit a heart that um, is mournful over sin a heart that is meek and merciful to others etc now somehow in all of their exhaustive expansion and exposition and interpretation of the old testament the religious rulers of israel had distorted God's purpose for the Mosaic Law. They had come to the point where they actually believed that God was only concerned with the external observance of the law and of their traditions, for example, regarding the Sabbath. And therefore, they paid little or no attention to the internal motives of the heart and and the internal attitudes. They saw nothing wrong with their evil thoughts as long as those evil thoughts never... Um, matured, whatever evolved, and took place, they did something with their hands. So um, we talked an awful lot about that. However, by way of Jesus' teaching on on the subjects of this section, murder, adultery, etc., the Lord taught that God is indeed very, very concerned with not only a man's actions, what he does with his hands and his feet, but with his thoughts and with his motives and and with his attitudes. He is concerned with um, with the sins of anger and covetousness and with lust and with uh, um, not keeping our promises and with hatred. He is concerned with those sins as much as he is concerned with the outward manifestations of those inner sins, such as murder and adultery and divorce and lying and getting vengeance essentially what we learned as we looked at the first five illustrations in this fourth division of this sermon is that we are all A-L-L we are all guilty in God's eyes I don't know how anybody after studying the Sermon on the Mount could ever say well I've never sinned I've never had one bad thought one bad motive baloney, it's just not true all have sinned. <laughs> they're lying right there and they're having pride. That's <laughs> proud, isn't it? <laughs> we have all sinned. We have all come short of the glory of God. Not a single one of us would get to heaven if it was up to us alone. We all, none of us would meet his holy standards of righteousness. And so out of all of this, I think what we, we saw is what Jesus wanted us to see, and that is why we so badly need his righteousness and that's why he died in our place what a great exchange he took our sin and we get his righteousness i'll I'll make that deal anytime (laughs) i'll I'll make that exchange anytime now that was the introduction (laughs) whoa i told you i'd be in trouble ah now there is not a better comparison between the false, hypocritical, external-only righteousness of the religious leaders back in first-century Israel and true godly heart-righteousness than in this sixth and final illustration that he gave in this fourth section of the sermon, the reinterpretations of of the law. And that contrast deals with love. In no greater area had the scribes and Pharisees so sharply departed from God's standard of holiness than they did in the area of love. Were they a loving group of guys? Ah, remember how they treated that man at the pool of Bethesda here? This guy laid there for 38 years, an invalid. And he finally gets to roll up his pallet and starts walking away and they say, how dare you carry your bed pallet on the Sabbath? I mean, that's really showing a lot of love. Remember the blind, we haven't gotten to the blind man, but the man that was born blind and Jesus healed him and gave him his sight? This guy has been blind since he was born. And instead of being excited for him, they said, Oh, the one that healed you has a devil. And they they didn't want, and they desynagogued him. They threw him out of the synagogue because he said, Well, how could he heal me, you know, if he was a sinner? Really loving religious rulers they were. So if there was anything they were significantly lacking in, it was love. And like so much of humanity, the primary reason for this was because they were so in love with themselves. Mm. and their own image and their own status in life they had little time they had little patience they had little concern for anyone who could not somehow benefit them is that what, not what we see in the world today? oh, selfish, selfish, selfishness they certainly had no love for the little people you know, uh, the, the, uh, the common people anybody who was outside of their own inner circle and we know how they felt about their enemies. How did they feel about their enemies, the Romans or any other Gentile for that matter? They thought of them as less than dogs. They hated them. They did not even love God, even though they would, you know, they would argue fervently with that statement. They would deny that statement and say, of course we love God. But Jesus said, no, you do not love God. And uh, one proof of that is that they would, they would have had a hatred like he did for all the corruption going on in God's house if they had hated God and if they had loved God. And if they had loved God, they would have, they would have seen him in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But they did not really love God. And, and that was proven when they killed his son. He got in the way of their pride, didn't he? He got in the way of their, their prestige. He got in the way of their profits and their power. Now, of all the characteristics or attitudes that should describe the true kingdom citizen, the true believer in Jesus Christ, none should be more obvious to, to the world than the attribute of love. Would you agree? What did Jesus say? He said to his men, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one to another. John 13:35. If the non-Christians of this world <clears throat> are going to be drawn to having a desire to know God from the saltiness of our lives, then they must see the supernatural love of God manifested in us. And it really takes supernatural love, not only just to love one another. You know, speaking of our, of our Christian brothers and sisters, I mean, sometimes that takes an effort, right? <laughs> to love one another. That takes a lot of effort sometimes. But... What kind of supernatural love does it take to even love our enemies? But that's what he commands of us here in this, uh, in this part of the scripture. So let's read what he has to say about love. And I'm having a hard time this morning with my context, so bear with me. This one isn't working at all. It's a total blur. So let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 5. Now, if you see a neighbor next to you who, who doesn't, maybe some of you are brand new in the word. I don't know where you're all coming from, and I'm sorry if you're sort of lost if I'm flying through. All of our lessons won't be like this, I promise you. They'll all be long, <laughs> but they won't be maybe this covering so much territory. But if you see a neighbor who doesn't know where a particular book in the Bible, just reach over and help him. Don't be embarrassed about that if, if that's you. Help your neighbor find a book. I mean, sometimes I have to go to the context and find Philemon or... The book of Noah. (laughs) Uh, Somebody was awake. All right, let's look at Matthew 5. Matthew 5, verses 43 to 48. Jesus says, Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, Bless them that curse you, Do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. We'll recall in the last lesson when we broke up back in May, that was a lesson on retaliation, verses 39 to 42. We learned that we are to willingly deny ourselves. We are to, if necessary, we are to give up our rights. So as to possibly win to Christ those who despise or persecute or abuse us in a personal way. We were told, remember, to turn the other cheek. We were told to be willing to go an extra mile if necessary uh, or to give up not only our coat but also our cloaks. We're willing to give up our rights, you know, which everybody nowadays is clinging to their rights. Well, this is my right, and I'm going to sue you, and I'm going to do that. Jesus said, mm mm. On a personal level, be willing to sacrifice so that you can possibly win the person abusing you or harming you to the Lord. And through that, glorify the Lord with your non vengeful behavior. Who does vengeance belong to? Us? belongs to the lord vengeance is mine saith the lord and of course nowhere do we see a non-venge non-vengeance displayed for us and exemplified for us than in the life of the lord jesus christ himself he was our prime example now however in the the, okay so that's what we looked at last time we looked at being non-vengeful now in this next illustration the lord um is uh, taking us a step further. He's taking us one step further and deeper. Not only is the believer to be non-vengeful, he is to love the very one who has, for example, slapped his face. Remember how we discussed that 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 was an insult because it was done with the right hand, left hand? I can't remember. But anyway, we discussed how that particular slap was an insult, not so much a physical hurt as a as an um, insult to our character. So we're not only to, not, to be non-vengeful, but we're to um, love that person who insulted us. And, um, or the one who forced us to carry his heavy burden or caused us to sacrifice one of our freedoms or sued us, You know, has taken our possessions. We're to love them. And then, as if that isn't radical enough, went on to say that not only are we to love them, but we're to pray for them who infringe upon our dignity and our security and our freedoms and or our possessions you know it's one thing to resist the temptation to get payback you know sometimes i feel good if i've just done that much well that person hurt me but i'm going to be a really godly person i'm going to be a great christian and i'm not going to have payback i'm not going to get my vengeance and i feel good about myself for that you know and um So it's one thing to resist temptation to get payback, an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth or whatever, to return evil for evil and, you know, to overcome that and turn the other cheek. That's one thing. But to love and even pray for the one who has done us injury, that is loving supernaturally. The title for this lesson is Loving and Living Supernaturally. And that... um, is really in summary what this is all about loving and living supernaturally that's what the whole sermon on the mount is all about well in Matthew 5:43 first part of the verse Jesus said when he said ye have heard that it hath been said that thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy what he was doing there was repeating to his listeners the traditional rabbinic teaching which the average man on the street would have believed because this is what they had been taught by their their rulers They're spiritual rulers. It was what they had heard all their lives, in other words. But it was not what the Mosaic Law taught. Rather, it was a religious establishment perversion of what the scriptures actually taught. You see, while the words, thou shalt love thy neighbor, do indeed come from the Mosaic Law, you can find them in Leviticus 19.18, it does say, thou shalt love thy neighbor. That part is true, yet it is... What they were teaching was not a complete teaching of what the Mosaic Law said because the Mosaic Law went on to say, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But that wasn't being passed down to the people. It was just being passed down, Thou shalt love thy neighbors. The words as thyself are missing, and those are very significant words. I can say, Oh, yes, I love my neighbor. Yes, I love love them. They're good people. Actually, my neighbors are good people. (laughs) I'm surrounded by good Christian people. And I can say, yes, I love them. But as myself, ooh, hmm, that's really getting close to home. A neighbor is close to home. God's perfect standard of righteousness his perfect standard has always been that believers should love their neighbors as they love themselves. And that perfect standard of righteousness, It interestingly, is repeated in the New Testament seven times. Seven is God's number of perfection. And it actually says in the New Testament seven times, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. You'll notice when you, if you stay in this Bible study long enough, we talk about the number seven a lot. All right, I've got to move along here very quickly, and I am really having trouble seeing, so I'm sorry for the stuttering here. <clears throat> All right, the religious rulers tried to make God's holy standards of righteousness see more attainable. They were always taking God's holy standards and trying to lower them down where they could attain them and then feel good about themselves. And that's exactly what they were doing here. So they taught that it was enough to merely have an affectionate type of love, you know, quote-unquote love for one's neighbor in order to be acceptable to God. So they committed three errors in their teaching, and the first one was the elimination of those two words. And you know there's a strong warning at the end of the book of Revelation to tamper with God's word, isn't there? You know, you don't take away from and you don't add to, and they did both of these. And then they redefined a word. They redefined the word neighbor. This was another mistake that they did. Uh, they interpreted the word neighbor to be someone after their own kind, to steal a phrase from Genesis. One's neighbor certainly, in their estimation, did not include such sinfully despicable people like tax collectors and, and prostitutes. And most certainly, in their estimation, the word neighbor as they said God intended it, did not include the Gentiles or, of course, the Samaritans, who were half-breeds. To the very self-righteous Jews, one's neighbor did not even include the common Jewish people themselves. Most of the religious leadership of Israel thought of the common people, especially Galileans. And where was Jesus from? And most of his disciples, except for Judas Iscariot, they were all from Galilee. They thought of them as being accursed because of their lack of knowledge with regard to the law. But the irony of the situation is that the common people actually knew the law better than, than their spiritual leaders in, in many cases. There was a Pharisaic saying which stated if a Jew, this is amazing, it says this if a Jew sees a Gentile fallen into the sea, in other words, he's drowning, a Gentile is drowning. Let him by no means lift him out, for it is written, thou shalt not rise up against the blood of thy neighbor. In other words, uh, that's what's written, thou shalt not rise up against the blood of thy neighbor, but, they went on to say, this man is not thy neighbor. So you can let him drown. You don't have to rescue him of the good Samaritan. The Jewish priest and the Levite, who had purposely walked right by the robbed, beaten, and dying man, were typical examples of the lovelessness of the religious rulers. They failed to understand God's definition. God's definition of a neighbor. God's definition of a neighbor is anyone who has a need, and we have the means to meet that need. Like our friends down in um, New Orleans and in, in Mississippi, they have need. They are our neighbors. Even though they don't live right next door to us, they are our neighbors, and we should be reaching out and helping them. They have a need, and if we have the means to meet some of those needs, we should meet them. And that includes, you know, whether in a, they're an acquaintance, whether they're a stranger, whether they're a Jew, a Gentile, a Samaritan, a friend, or a foe. They did not, actually, the truth of the matter is that the religious rulers did not even demonstrate a natural human kind of compassion or concern for for uh, the man. The, the Levite and the um, priest didn't even... Most non-Christians would even stop and help help out somebody who'd be, been beaten and robbed and was left there dying. But they didn't even have a natural kind of compassion for him. The Samaritan in that parable who did stop to help out the desperate man had understood who his neighbor was. He understood what the religious rulers didn't and that, his na- that is that his neighbor is anyone who has a need that he has the means to supply can you imagine what a horrible testimony the jews back in jesus's day had to the world around them it's just a terrible testimony how could the lost people of that time have ever understood that the god of the jews was a god of love by the way they behaved the way they thought of of gentiles and how they treated them how could they have ever grasped the fact that the god of such self-centered hateful people so loved them that he actually became a man to die and was willing to die for them you know it really is truly amazing when you look at especially the spiritual leaders of Israel it's really amazing that any gentiles ever accepted the jewish messiah Well, continuing on, perhaps the most serious of errors regarding the rabbinical interpretation of the Mosaic Law was that it told the people that they were to hate their enemies. To the Jew, everybody other than another Jew was to be considered an enemy. The religious rulers even suggested that it was their responsibility to hate the Gentiles, and that they were actually honoring God when they did so. The sect of the Essenes, remember the Essenes? They were the sect of Israel's religious rulers who went and hid themselves in the caves of Qumran. They said the world is wicked, and so they just hid their light under a bushel and um, went out and lived in the caves and just kept to themselves. But they actually said this. They They taught that it was their divine responsibility to, quote, love their brothers but to hate the outsiders, end of quote. Terrible testimony, isn't it? You know, if you want to see if a religion is true or not, well, there's only one that is, and that's Christianity. But look at the hatred of, for example, the the Muslims. How can that be of, of God? How could Allah be the same as God? He isn't. I mean, you know, it says hate, hate the non-Christian, hate the the Christian and hate the Jew and kill them and wipe them out. God isn't a God of hate. He's a God of love. And so for them to say hate their enemies, it was such a perversion of the law. That perversion was so bad that the Romans actually made the statement that the Jews had a hatred for the entire human race outside of themselves. Here they were you know, they had the opportunity, they could have been witnessing to all these Romans who were right there in their own backyard. You know, they were their oppressors. Okay, right. But they could have been winning them to the Lord by showing them all this love, the love of God, supernatural agape love. But instead they were hating them and sneaking up on them, slitting their throats. Of course, you know, how were they going to be led to the true God, Jehovah God, through such a witness? Now, I want you to know that nowhere in the Mosaic law does it say, nowhere does it say, to hate our enemies. You can look and look and look, and it, the command to hate our enemies is nowhere to be found. Yes, granted, God did tell Israel to deal severely and harshly with the idol-worshiping, child-sacrificing pagans when they, came in, you know, when they came into the Promised Land, such as the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Midianites, the Ammonites, etc., However, this was so that a cancer would be cut out before it could spread and before it could spiritually corrupt the Israelite camp, which would then end the testimony of the true God, Jehovah God, to the world, and it would dishonor his name, and it would cut off the line through which the Messiah was promised to come. But you see, this was a judicial thing that they were to, to wipe out the pagan worshipers. It was judicial. It was political. It was civil. It wasn't personal individual you understand the difference we're talking about personal us as christians we are not ever to hate our enemies on a one-on-one so if i saw um even a terrorist lying in front of me dying i wouldn't walk right by him and say well he's an enemy and i'm supposed to hate him on an individual basis i am supposed to reach out with love Show him love and take care of him. He is my neighbor. The Jews wrongly were justifying their personal hatred for Gentiles, for their enemies, with Old Testament passages, you see, that dealt with divine justice and with the preservation of God's honor and God's name. They, they also ignored such verses as Proverbs twenty five twenty one. Oh, did I? Oh, is that it? But now there are many verses, I've got some others listed, that you know, tell us that we are to love, or told them, the Israel of old, that they were to, to reach out and help their enemy if their he- enemy was in need. Um, If thine enemy be hungry, give him bread. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. And then you can look up some of those other passages if you want. Now, in contrasting the very limited rabbinic teaching regarding love with his own teaching on the matter, Jesus said, but I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you. Notice that he had first given the negative command to not retaliate when wronged. And now he goes a step deeper by giving the positive command to, uh, to actually love the one who has hurt us. Like so much else that he had been saying in the sermon, this must have really shocked his listeners because they had never ever before heard that they were to have a love so great that it even embraced their enemies. Now this is what the Old Testament taught, but this isn't what they heard. And remember, they didn't have their own private copy of God's word. They only learned what they knew through their ruler, the religious rulers and what was read to them in the synagogue, and then interpreted for them. Uh, they had never heard that they were to embrace their enemies and uh, those who cursed them and abused them and persecuted them. It's, as we talked about before, it's one thing not to strike back, but it's altogether a tremendous jump forward to love the one who has hurt you the love that a Christian is able to have and to demonstrate toward the very one who has hurt them, you know, whether that's verbal abuse or physical or whatever, um, that's the uniqueness that separates us or is supposed to separate us from the rest of humanity. I read a little saying that said, to return evil for good is devilish. To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. But to return good for evil is divine. And that's what we're called to do. And we can do it if God's love is living in us through his spirit. Now, when the Lord used the word love in this verse, in these verses, he was talking about agape love. And that's different from usual, the usual definition of love that we hear. The Hollywood crowd version of love is usually... The, the Greek word eros, from which we get the word erotica, er, er, erotic, you know, the Hollywood romance, sexual kind of love. That's not the word he used. He didn't use even phileo, which was a brotherly kind of love. He didn't use storge. You know, the Greek has four words for love. We only have one word. I wish we had four words, because then you could get more specific. Storge is just a natural kind of love that a mother has for her child, you know, or a, a child has for a parent. But he used the word agape, which is divine, supernatural, unconditional love that only comes from one source. It comes only from God. Agape love seeks the highest good of another. It is love with no conditions. It is love which is far more than just feelings. It, is, uh, it involves the will. It is an act of the will kind of love. You know, human nature tends to base love on conditions, We love because of what someone has done for us. Or we love because of how great someone makes us feel. Or because of their attractiveness that pleases us. Or because they build up our ego so much or whatever. Sometimes we just love because they love us so much. But that's all of that is a because of love. But agape love loves without any condition. So it's a, not a because of love, it's a regardless of love. Agape love can love the unlovely, and it can love the unattractive, and it can and it does even love the rebellious sinner. God's love is need-oriented love. God saw that we had a need, right? He saw we, need a, we had a need to be loved and to be saved. And so he loved us first. Why do we love him? We love him because he first loved us. It's an impartial love. The good Samaritans saw the need of that beaten Jewish man, and he sacrificed his own time, his own safety. You know, those robbers could have been right around the corner and jumped on him. He, he uh, sacrificed his effort, his money, to meet the man's need. So agape love is also sacrificial love. It is demonstrated, sacrificial, unconditional, impartial, indiscriminate love. It acts. It doesn't just exist. You know, when you go to the very famous love chapter of the Bible, which is what? 1 Corinthians 13. Um, you don't read adjectives. God doesn't say love is fluffy. Love is goosebumply, heart beating, heart pulsing, um, sweet, lovey, gooey, whatever. No, there are no adjectives, uh, not even um, nouns. Boy, I wish I could. Yeah, like a feeling. Whew, can't see today. It's not even described in, in it with nouns like love is a feeling. But it's described in verbs. There are fifteen verbs given in that chapter to tell us about love. It's an action it's active god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son let's look at it it says uh first corinthians 13 it might be in your notes or if you want to flip over there but it says here that love suffers long love is kind love does not envy love does not vaunt itself it doesn't puff itself up it does not behave unseemly it seeks not its own good it is not easily provoked wives It does not think evil of the other. It rejoices not in iniquity, but in the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Are you having a fight with your husband? Read 1 Corinthians 13 to yourself. Go off in private and read it and remind yourself of it. Very significantly, also, love never fails. Love never fails. Now, I know it's the word charity, but charity in the old King James is really the word love. Love never fails. Agape love is the love God demonstrated toward us while we were yet sinners, and he sent his only begotten son to die for us. You know, it says faith, hope, and charity, but the greatest of these is what? charity or love why do you think that is why is it greater than faith and hope you know why because it's the only one that will endure forever when we get to heaven we're not going to need faith anymore faith is the substance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen when we're in heaven we won't need faith it's going to be right there in front of us jesus christ we don't need faith and we don't need hope anymore because we're going to be there The the thing we're hoping for is heaven and we'll be there but what will be there? Love. That's why it's the greatest, because it will endure throughout all of eternity. Well, we're commanded by Jesus to love our enemies, uh, to pray for our enemies. You know, it's difficult for us in our flesh to love our enemies. So he gave us some practical steps how to do that. And how, do, how can you best love someone who has hurt you or who is a foe, who opposes you, who slanders you, who isn't very nice to you? How can you do it? How's the best way to love them? Pray, them? pray for them. Get act. Get involved in their lives. Pray for them. Do them good. And uh, well, here's the order: bless them, do them good, and pray for them. The benefit of praying for our enemies is that we will, um, we will. It will change us. It will change our. It might not change them. They might always remain your enemy. But it will change you. And you can eventually even have a love toward your enemies. The more we pray for them, it seems the more we become concerned about their life. We actually become an active participator in their life because we are an intercessor to God for them. We begin to see them and to love them, not for what they are, our enemy, the one who has hurt us but for who they are, that they are a human being made in the image of God, a soul who is destined to spend an eternity in either heaven or hell, a sinner just in in as much need of God's forgiveness and God's grace as we are and as we continue to be. We begin to really have supernatural, unconditional, divine love For them as we pray for them To find in Christ all that we have found ourselves Of course those who despitefully use us and persecute us May not always be lost We may not always be praying for their salvation Christians can induce a lot of hurt upon one another As we probably all well know To heal these broken relationships Jesus has the same advice. Pray. Pray for them. This is the first step in the reconciliation process. As we commune with God about someone on a regular basis, God's heart and God's love and God's concern for that individual soon begins to knit together with our heart and with our love and our concern for that person, and we truly begin to care for them as God cares for them, with his love flowing through us to them and for them. Okay, the second part of our Lord's illustration on love states that when we manifest God's supernatural love to not only our neighbors but to our enemies as well, then we are demonstrating to the world a supernatural life. Let's look at verse 45. He says to do this, to love them, to bless them, do good, and pray for them, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. When we are so filled with God's presence and so yielded to the Holy Spirit within us that we can love our enemies, and pray for them that persecute us, then we have truly testified of the fact that we are children of our Heavenly Father. The single greatest evidence of our sonship, of the fact that we are born again, is this love that we have for our fellow man. Even a person who has never heard the gospel, who has never read a word of the scripture, who has never heard of Jesus Christ, must have to acknowledge that there is something unnatural about an individual who loves even his persecutors and prays for his enemies. Stephen certainly got Saul's attention uh, as Stephen was being stoned to death. He prayed, remember, for those that were persecuting him, for those who were um, murdering him. And he said, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. That got Saul's attention. He wasn't able to forget about that. And I wouldn't be a bit surprised if that's what he was thinking about on the trip to Damascus when the Lord intervened in his life. A life like Stephen exhibited... Think about Daniel, too, under King Nebuchadnezzar and King Darius. A life like that is supernatural, and it gives evidence of the fact that the one who lives like that is in sonship, is a son of the Father who is in heaven, where only such love could originate. Those who are the children of God also should demonstrate the impartial love. You might want to write that outside The verse there, 45, impartial love and concern, which God demonstrates to the entire world. It says, For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good. I mean, we don't get a sunrise just if we're Christians. Everybody in the world gets to enjoy the beauty of a sunrise and a sunset, and he sends his rain on the just and on the unjust. This is known as God's common grace. That's a theological term, you won't find it in the scripture, but it's known as his common grace. Thomas Watson, who was a Puritan um, writer back in the 1600s, he said it like this, His sweet dew falls upon the thistle as well as upon the rose. This is indiscriminate benevolence. Psalm 145 verse 16 says, Thou dost open thy hand and dost satisfy the desire of every living thing. And James 1.17, of course, tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from where? It comes from above, from the Father of lights. All good things come from God, and the saved as well as the unsaved, the good as well as the evil, the just as well as the unjust, are the recipients of God's common grace. All mankind benefits from the sunshine and from the rain, from the beauty of creation from the natural resources, from our physical bodies, our health, from uh, the blessing of having children, etc., as well as all of our physical and emotional and intellectual and spiritual-type needs. The good as well as the bad, then, partake of God's common blessings, his common grace, although only those who come to him by faith in Jesus Christ will receive his crowning grace. There's a difference between common grace and crowning grace. The point Jesus is making is that since God the Father does this for everyone indiscriminately, then we who are his children should do no less. We, too, should love indiscriminately. We should love the good and the evil. And then he goes on to say in verses 40. 6 and 47 that if we only love those who love us then our righteousness is not one degree better than the righteousness of the scribes and the pharisees he cuts down their self-centered love when he says that even the publicans you know the tax collectors even they and even the gentiles he says even they can do that Even the tax collectors and the Gentiles, who you religious leaders despise so much, even they can love those who love them. Uh, Jesus is saying that even they can love and greet those who love them. That's just natural. There's nothing supernatural about that at all. So what are you religious leaders doing, he says, that is any better than they do? How does he word that? Let me see. If ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute or greet your brethren only, what do ye more? I like that. What do you do more than others? You might want to ask yourself that. And then he goes on, do not even the publicans so? Meaning do so. The King James is sort of funny there. Uh, So what are you doing? Your righteousness is not one ounce better than those you hate so much, that you think you're so much better than. Then in verse 48, our Lord brings all of his teaching through this whole fourth section here to a final climactic statement when he says, and this is really an amazing statement, Be ye therefore what? Perfect. Perfect. Even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. In other words, Jesus says that the kingdom citizen, the born-again man or woman, is to be like God. That's it. Cut and dry. We are to live as Jesus Christ himself lived. We are to follow in his footsteps, imitating his example of saltiness and light to the world. We are to live and to love supernaturally. Now, we may at once realize that this standard is very high. That's an understatement. If we are to be righteous, righteous enough to enter into the kingdom of heaven, then we must be perfect. And that word is also mature, holy, mature. And we must be as perfect as God is perfect. Murder and anger, adultery and lust, hatred, pride, deception, not telling the truth, breaking a vow, and retaliation, vengeance, do not characterize God's holiness. He did not lower his standards of righteousness in order to accommodate humans, as the Pharisees had tried to do. Instead, he set forth his absolute perfection as his standard. Because God the Father is perfect, his children are expected to be perfect. Now, we know, or we should know by this point in the sermon, that it is utterly impossible To reach this perfection on our own. So, how is it that Christ can command us to do that which is impossible? Well, he gives us the answer later on in the book of Matthew, in chapter 19, verse 26: with men, this is impossible, but with God, what? All things are possible. God would never command us to do something which he does not give us the power to accomplish. To attain God's righteousness is impossible for man on his own because of the the fact that it is perfect. God's righteousness is perfect. However, this impossible righteousness is made possible to them who trust in Jesus Christ. How? Because he gives those who have received him as Lord and Savior his own perfect righteousness. And this has been the point to which all of these six illustrations were to lead his listeners to the point where they realize their own frustration in accomplishing what he is demanding to the point where they realize their own inadequacy and helplessness to ever, ever meet these divine standards of holiness and perfection. He wants us to come to the point, and I think this is really interesting, we've made a full circle here. He wants us to come to the point of poverty of spirit. How did he start the sermon? Blessed are they which are poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is where he began this entire sermon. We are to see our need of the Savior because we see our own spiritual bankruptcy. We see that we are inadequate. We cannot do it on our own. And we are to mourn. Remember, that was the second beatitude. We are to mourn and grieve over our own condition and realize that only by having the divine nature in us could we ever love and live supernaturally and be perfect as God is perfect in heaven. Now, what about you today? Do you have the divine nature of God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit indwelling you. Has the love of God been shed abroad in your heart through and by the Holy Spirit so that you are able to love even your enemies, even those who are persecuting you and hurting you so much? Have you seen yourself as utterly hopeless and helpless and condemned before a holy and perfect God Have you ever received the free grace of God in Jesus Christ? Have you ever acknowledged that his torturous, painful, agonizing death on the cross was for you, was on your behalf? So that in him you might be made perfect. You might be made the righteousness of God so that in him you might be seen as positionally perfect before God and therefore enter into his holy presence for all of eternity. If you have not ever done this, if you have not ever gotten yourself right with God, I invite you right now, I don't do this very often, but I felt led from this lesson to do this. I invite you right now, to pray this prayer in your heart as I say it with my mouth. The Lord will honor it if you speak it from your heart. And I invite you to then confess what you have done. The Bible says that if you shall confess, with your mouth, the Lord Jesus Christ, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But he does say that you should confess it with your mouth. So if you pray this prayer with me today, I would like you to come and confess that to me with your mouth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. If you've never invited him into your heart, just say this prayer right now in your heart to him. Dear Jesus, I know that I am indeed a sinner and that i fall far short of meeting your perfect standards of righteousness and holiness i thank you that because you came to earth to die for me on the cross that i am forgiven and i am declared righteous before you i thank you that because of your resurrection from the dead i too can know the power of your resurrection Please, Lord Jesus, come now into my heart and fill me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as both my Savior and the Lord over my life. Teach me to love and to forgive others as you have loved and now forgiven me. Give me now, Lord, the boldness to confess my new birth to others. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me, we pray. In your name, amen.